Revelation 1 now calls us to a time of fellowship with God. Listen to Re- Revelation 1.3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. It's an incredible statement, and it really, by this, we are called to come now in and read and hear, and that means understand and apply these words. And as we do so, we are to be envied. That's what the word blessed means. To be envied are those. Um, if we will, now as we study, study the word of God together, heed it and endeavor to live in light of it, to respond to it, brothers and sisters, that's the high life. That's the envy. That's being envied um, in God's uh, kingdom. Towards that end, let me invite you to turn with me to Psalm 120 as we are now beginning this series on the Psalms of Ascent. Last week, we introduced, we got an introduction through it. I introduced us all to it. And uh, um, this morning, we're going to start walking our way through this section, uh, Psalm by Psalm. So 15 Psalms, 15 weeks as we walk our way through it. Psalm 120 is the first one that, as you'll note, has that superscription in it, a song of ascents. It's in the Hebrew. So God intended this to, to be, um, this section is, a, as Spurgeon called it, a, a mini psalter, a psalter within the psalter, a psalm section within the book of Psalms, written for pilgrims who have been called by God to come up three times a year to worship. So this is really a section where we are given the grace to see what God would have us meditate on as we prepare for worship each week. Which means every one of these psalms, and this psalm beginning with it, is a psalm God wants us to have in our minds. The truths of it, singing it, thinking it, meditating on it, as we go to him and worship. And as we see, this also is a psalm of a sense, as we go to God in the new heavens and the new earth as we go to worship him face to face, as we live our Christian lives to be um, graduated into the presence of God. This is the preparation God would have us think in our minds. Have this be our mindset. This be our worldview. So Psalm 120 begins it. And uh, let me invite you to stand together with me as we read God's word out of reverence and respect for the word of our God. Psalm 120. Hear now the word of King Jesus. In my trouble, I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree. Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshech, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. That's Father, reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege you've given us now to, to meditate upon this glorious psalm that you've given us, O Lord, to sing, to meditate, to memorize, and so to live. And uh, Lord, give us the grace as we have gathered here as your, as your beloved children to appropriate this, the truths of this psalm, that it would become the worldview with which we live, that the, the lens through which you, we view this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Most of you know the story of Lot 
and um, how he, as the nephew of Abraham, was uh, uh, called, or he went with Abraham, as God called Abraham from Ur, the Chaldees, all the way up to Haran, northern Assyria, northern Palestine, then down to Palestine, the promised land, and there they set up tents, the whole bed, and then down to Egypt, where God blessed Abraham and the entire clan. They became very wealthy, and they went back to the promised land, and at this time, because of their wealth and because of all the animals that they had and because of, of it being dry, the servants of Lot and the servants of Abraham began fighting. You recall this. Genesis 13, we pick up the, the story. Then Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we're brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, I'll go to the right. Or if to the right, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as far as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. So from this point, Lot takes his family into the Jordan Valley, the Jordan Rift, that he actually goes south of the Dead Sea, which at this time was a veritable paradise. And he settled in Sodom and Gomorrah, which, as you and I both know, was advanced in their sinning. They were advanced in their degradation. They were living in advanced rebellion against God, where they were immoral and desperately wicked, not only wicked in their hearts, but wicked in their actions. Recall the two angels visited Lot, and the men wanted to, to lay with these, with these angels, and Lot said no, so God, the angels struck them blind, and they still sought them out. Very wicked place. Well, brothers and sisters, Lot is a follower of God. Lot is a servant of Christ, and you and I may criticize his choice, and rightly so. Nevertheless, he did love Jesus, and Genesis doesn't record for us the impact that Sodom and Gomorrah had on his heart in his walk. But Peter does in 2 Peter. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2. Righteous Lot was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented, in the Greek, tortured, He felt tortured. He felt his righteous soul tormented day after day after day is the implication with their lawless deeds. Speaking of Lot, Randy Steele wrote these words. Although there were times in his own life when he was selfish, weak, and materialistic, speaking of Lot, the culture with its unrestricted immorality and outrageous lifestyle spiritually beat him down. He, he, his chosen society violated, quote, both the conviction of conscience and of the commandment of God, unquote. As though uh, this were not enough, the unrighteousness of others with whom he lived tormented, tortured him in his redeemed uh, condition. The lawlessness of his neighbors and the spiritually unprincipled way they went about their lives took its toll on Lot, its spiritually oppressed his soul. Do you know any of that oppression? Does this resonate with you? Do you feel like living in this world you just don't fit? 
because of your faith in Jesus Christ, because of your citizenship in God's kingdom, do you feel at times oppressed by what's going on in this world? Do you feel tortured, tormented in your soul? It's a very common response of God's people. If you, if you can say yes to that, amen, well, you're right at home. Because all God's people, genuine servants of the Lord, they feel that way. David did, and I referenced him this morning, because not only did he feel that way, but he also tells us what he did about it. Listen to Psalm 63. Oh God, my soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This was written when he was on the run from Saul. And it's tempting to think, oh, he must have been in a, a desert area. So he's saying, my soul longs for you just like you're, you're, it would be in a, in, a, in a dry and weary place. But the context, Psalm 61, 62, and 63, are, are, they are linked. They all reference this time. And the focus of this is not his physical thirst. It's on him being immorally and unrighteously accused and attacked and um, uh, pursued. It's him responding to these unjust accusations, feeling overwhelmed by God. I'm sorry, overwhelmed by the things of this, of this earth. So what does he do? Notice Psalm 63, 1 and 2. Oh God, thou art my God, I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee, my flesh yearns for thee. Verse 2, thus I have beheld thee in the sanctuary to see thy power and thy glory. Brothers and sisters, the impact of this world upon David is just like us, just like Lot. But what did David do? What does this text say? It says, you read it, it says that he longed to be with Christ. He longed to be with God. He went to the Lord in prayer and he also went to the Lord to worship. When he felt this world pressing down, torturing his soul, his desire was to worship God, to be with God. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, that is the one place you won't be criticized. That's the one place that you will be unconditionally um, um, re, um, uh, uh, received. That's the one place where you know that that being is looking with, with gladness and joy in his heart because he's forgiven us. That's the one place where there is no pressure. There is no torture. That's the relief. Kidner wrote in his commentary on Psalm 63, The longing of these verses is not the groping of a stranger feeling his way towards God, but the eagerness of a friend, almost of a lover, to be in touch with the one he holds dear. Brothers and sisters, that Psalm 120 it's written from the perspective of the exile, in the diaspora, in the dispersion, living in the world amongst, uh, surrounded by people who don't know Christ, who don't love Christ, who don't care about Christ. And the longing, as we'll see, of the heart of the psalmist, of this song. So get this. This is the, the movement God wants us all to have in our lives. As you and I are oppressed, and you will be. As you and I are feeling tortured, feeling heavy, and you will be and should be. God wants us to bring that, to allow that to force us to fellowship with him, to pray to him, to commune with him, to worship him. That's the point. Now, Psalm 120 is a psalm, which means it's poetry. And because it's poetry, it was written to be taken in as a whole. So you read it, and you read it, and you get to know it well enough, and then you step back 
and you muse upon the message, the, the full message that you get. It's, it's poetry. And as poetry is beautifully written, but as teaching, if you teach through this, it's not beautifully written. If you want to teach through it, right? Um, this was written for, for an impression um, based upon truth, right? But we're going to teach through this. So we're going to begin at verse 5 because that's the basis. We don't know why the psalm is crying out here until you get to verse 5. So we're going to begin at verse 5 because then that will make verse 1 a little bit more sense. So notice with me, we're going to begin with the burden. Notice verse 5. He says, woe is me. That's a malediction. Cursed am I. Strong statement. Cursed am I, for I sojourn in Meshech, for I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Now, he's not speaking literally here, because if you know the geography, if you know what these words are, and you know them in one second, um, you'll see there's no way he could live here. So he's speaking generally here. Meshech, according to Herodotus, is a people group way up north. It's, at the time this was written, probably the farthest boundary they could think of north from Jerusalem. It was north in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, on the banks of the Baltic Sea. Okay, so way up there, that's Meshech. Kedar is Arabia. He's, uh, Kedar was the son of, of Ishmael, and his clan settled far south in Arabia, as far as Oman and Yemen, way down south. So from the perspective of Jerusalem, the psalmist says, man, I live way up there and way down there. This Amerism where it is saying everything in between. We live in the world, right? I, woe is me, I live in these places. Um, uh, cursed am I because of where I live. Now, why is he so cursed? Verse 6. Actually, before I go there, one note here. Brothers and sisters, he's talking about the farthest extent. And from the perspective of a Jew, Meshach and Kedar was as far away as you could get from Jerusalem, and therefore, get this, important, as far away as you can get from God. Living in this world, sometimes this world gets into us, doesn't it? And when that happens, we can feel really far from God. So take this context and hear this psalm. Because you know what? Psalm 139 here. Even there, God can be found. Even there, thou art with me. Even as dark and as bad as your week or month or year has been, God is with you. And the whole point of this psalm is to say, is to begin there. God is with his people. Even when you're in the greatest acts of rebellion, God will never let you go. That's the point here. So he lives, he, he's talking about from the uh, perspective geographically or spiritually, distant from God. There that God is. Notice with 6, verse 6, um, this incredible statement. For too long has my soul, this is why he's cursed, too long has my soul had his dwelling with those who hate peace. Now, if you're hearing this and you're t- taking it in, you're not, well, your mind's not wandering, my guess is your first gut reaction to that is like, that's it? <laughs> you're... Your problem is, is that you got a boss who, does, who lies a little? That's your problem? Your problem is that you got friends or family who lie? You try losing a loved one. Try losing your health. Try being, living in a land where, where, where Christians are killed and crucified and, and tortured 
Man, you think you got it rough because you have a boss who lies? That's not what this verse is saying, okay? That may be how you first, that's how I first read it. What? That's it? Yeah, well, you know, I tried preaching that this week, right? But no, it turns out he's not talking about bosses who lie or family members who, who are deceitful. He's talking about a whole entire world, culture, built and um, uh, founded on deceit. Satan's the, fathers of li- there's the father of lies. After the fall, this world was given to him, Luke chapter 4, right? It's in his hands. And our culture, our society, the world in which we live, get this, is built, created, and is governed on deceit. You ever struggle with that? I know you have to. The lies. What they're doing, what they're saying, what they're, what they're professing is wrong. Your, whole, your, your soul becomes tormented and heavy. Notice Eugene Peterson in his seminal work on the Song of Ascent. I recommend the book. It's called Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I'll reference it as we go on um, throughout the weeks. But notice what he wrote. The lies are impeccably factual. They contain no errors. There's no distortions or falsified data necessarily. But they are lies all the same because they claim to tell us who we are and omit everything about our origin in God and our destiny in God. They talk about the world without telling us that God made it. They tell us about our bodies without telling us that they are temples of the Holy Spirit. They instruct us in love without telling us about God who loves us and gave himself for us. A couple pages later, rescue me from the lies of of advertisers who claim to know what I need and what I desire, from the lies of entertainers who promise a cheap way to joy, from the lies of politicians who pretend to instruct me in the power and morality, from the lies of uh, psychologists who offer to shape my behavior and my morals so that I will live long, happily, and successfully, from the lies of religionists who, quote, heal the wounds of this people lightly, from the lips of moralists who pretend to promote me to the office of captain of my fate, from the lies of pastors who leave the commandment of God and hold fast the tradition of men. Rescue me from the person who tells me of life and omits Christ, who is wise in the ways of the world and ignores the movement of the Spirit. What impact does that, what we just heard, and a whole lot more, have upon you and me? We don't fit the world. You ever feel at times you just want to scream? You know, lies. You're wrong. You're, you're deluded. That's where the psalm begins. That's the state of the psalmist. That's what life is like as Christians living, living in a fallen world. And that's where we must recognize as we begin our trek to worship the, the Lord. Notice with me verse 7. He goes on, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the burden, brothers and sisters. He speaks the truth of God. He he stands up. Every time you and I stand up, you know what the result is? All out warfare. And, and, And it's on the part of people like you and me who, we don't rob banks. We don't mug people. We don't break into homes. We, we're, we're, we're good neighbors. We want to help people. But the moment you speak truth, you become an enemy of the world. I dare you in your, in your workplace, say that you believe that homosexuality is a sin. 
I dare you to say that this week. Say it loud. You'll probably lose your job. That's the world in which we live. And you feel it. It's heavy. And so notice he says, I am for peace, but they are for war. And thus, brothers and sisters, it will be all-out warfare. Hostility, persecution, difficulty, distress, martyrdom. Christ put it in Matthew chapter 24 with this warning. They will deliver you to tribulation. You will, they will kill you. You will be hated by all men on account of me, um, on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and, will be de- and deliver up one another and hate one another. Second Timothy 3, that is why Paul could say so definitely, all indeed who desire to give... I'm sorry, and indeed all who desire to live God in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So that's the burden. That's what led the psalmist to write what he wrote here. Well, what did he write here? Well, that brings us to his recourse. What did he do? He felt that way. He he knows this. You know it. What did he do? Notice verse 1 now. Now we're going to walk away through it. In my trouble, I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. This is an incredible statement. You know what he did? Two things. Two things uh, stick out here. One, he prayed. Now, you and I may go once again, anticlimactic. He prayed? You know, (laughs) that's it? We tend to think a prayer is the way to get God to do stuff, right? So, I mean, I remember as a baby Christian hearing that Martin Luther uh, uh, prayed for two hours a day. And all I could think of as a young Christian was, good night, how many requests did he have? I mean, think about that. You know, Martin Luther, make up your mind, say your peace, and be done with it. You're going to sit there for two. So I try to pray for long, right, because Martin Luther did. And I'd be giving all these requests. I ran out of memory, out of my mind. I didn't know what else to pray after five minutes. Lord bless mother, father, sister, brother, sister. What do you pray? Brothers and sisters, prayer is not. That's the result of prayer. And making requests. You'll make requests in your prayer. But that's not the essence of prayer. What is prayer? Prayer in Scripture is dependence and devotion. It's communion. Think of it from this perspective. Jesus Christ, God-man. Jesus Christ, if prayer is getting things done, Jesus Christ as God could have spoke a word, it would have been done. And yet throughout the pages of the Gospels, Jesus, the thing that characterized Christ more than anything else was prayer. He prayed. He was a praying man. He prayed all night. Good night. This man prayed everywhere at all times. Right? Well, what if he's God? Why would he be doing that? Because prayer is not making supplications. That's a form of prayer. That's the result of prayer. After you've prayed, that's what you end your prayer with would be supplications. But what is prayer? It's communion. It's where you sit um, on your knees or whatever, whatever posture you choose. And you take the characteristics of God. This is what I do. I take the characteristics of God and I hold the dialogue with God about them. I might take his kindness and say, oh God, I bow before you this day. And I look back upon my life and how I was like, what I was like before I was saved. And how you and your kindness delivered me from so much of the sin I wanted with all my heart. As a non-Christian, oh, I wish I could have done so many different things. But you and your kindness kept me from that. Thank you, God. And then I think of your kindness, how in time you delivered me. But God, you delivered me in such a wonderful way, opening my eyes. And brothers and sisters, you're just taking an attribute of God and you're communing with God around that. His goodness, his grace, his omnipotence, his work, his power, name it. And you can do that with God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's communion. And the more you do that, you'll pray and you'll open your eyes and go, my, oh, my, that was 45 minutes. 
That's what the psalmist is doing here. He is not going to God and saying, bless mother, father, sister, junior, bless, bless, bless. No, he's fellowshipping with God. In my trouble, I cried out to the Lord. He's fellowshipping with God, relying upon God, depending upon God. Look at the word cried out in the Psalms, and you'll see it denotes the idea of dependence, of this urgent dependence upon God. God, help me. It's the disciples. It's Peter on the waves, right? When he starts sinking, he cried out to the Lord. Lord, save me. It's not just God bless mother, father. It's be with me. Let me be with you. But would you notice secondly, what does the passage say? And he answered me. Brothers and sisters, I want you to notice one thing. In your verse, it says, in my trouble, I cried to the Lord. In the Hebrew, the psalm begins with shir halamot, which is song of a sense right? In the Hebrew. That's the preface. The very next word is to the Lord. It's one word. El Adonai. To, it's Yahweh, but to the Lord. It's in the emphatic. The psalmist here, when he's burdened, understand this. When you and I are burdened, what do we do? Well, we get together in fellowship on Sunday and we start talking about COVID and masks and and laws, and, and this, and that, and, and the wars, or whatever, the politics, and, and this, they're taking our guns, and, and all the different things. We're burdened. You know what, brothers and sisters, when you do that, that means you're not burdened enough. Because when you're really burdened by this world, the only answer for your soul, it's right there in the verse 1 in the Hebrew, the Lord. It's emphasizing it. Cling to the Lord. Go to the Lord. Long for the Lord. Um, Pray to the Lord. Trust the Lord. Draw near to the Lord. Be with the Lord. And when that happens, brothers and sisters, wow, because you're talking about the Lord, an omnipotent, unthwartable being who will always answer, answer you. Did you hear that? As far as he was, brothers and sisters, how could he not live in that land and not be like you and me? He's just like you and I. Having sometimes the land get into us, right? The world get in us. The place of the ship is in the sea, but woe to the ship when the world sea gets into it. The place of the church is in the world, but woe to the Christian when the world gets into us. And we are that. There's so many places in my life where I am worldly. I grab and hold and cling on to worldly thoughts, desires, name it, practices. I'm entertained by worldly things. And then I go to God in prayer and I feel bad and I feel guilty. And I feel like I've let God down and I feel like God is so far away. This text says he's not. You go to the Lord. He's there by your side answering you. He'll always answer you. Do you see that? It's incredible. He clings to God with the certainty that no matter how bad he is, how far he's fallen, how far he might be away from God, God is there and he'll always answer him. Isn't that incredible? Just incredible. And thus, brothers and sisters, he's living as far from the Lord as possible in Meshach and uh, Gadar. And these places were not beyond the watchful eye and care of God. In this regard, I can't help but to wonder how much of the, concentra- uh, of the consternation of the psalmist was the result of his own compromise and response to the temptations and the deceit of his lying world. Yet regardless of how far he felt from God on account of his sin or how far he was from Jerusalem on account of his geography, He could not remove himself from the presence of God, much less his divine love, aid, support, and forgiveness. So his prayer, or his recourse, he went to God in prayer. He 
he communed with God. Okay, and that tells me, tells us, if your inclination, when you're burdened by the world, is get together and, and start, you know, attacking it verbally, you're not burdened enough. You got to be brothers and sisters. When you're burdened with this word, burden, six and seven, five and six, that's when you go to the Lord. That only the Lord can be the salve for your soul when you're that burdened. All right. Now, would you notice thus? What was his prayer? Verse two. Deliver my soul, Lord, from lying lips and from a uh, deceitful tongue. The word for deliverance, not Saul. Okay, and it is a, a, a fundamentally, the word is used of, of, of being delivered or redeemed. However, it encompasses three elements. Being released or set free. Breaking away from the grasp of something. And being redeemed or ransomed. Being released, breaking away being redeemed. Accordingly, the prayer of the psalmist is that, get this, one, he and his family would be delivered from the lies and the deceit of his culture. Lord, deliver us. Break us away from it. Grasp us away. Second, that these lies would not impact him or his family personally. And then lastly, to the degree that they did, that their eyes would be open to see the lie for what it was and is, and so repent. That is our recourse as God's people. Now, that recourse is bolstered by three and four, the conviction. All of us have this, and you need to have this. You and I need to remind ourselves. Again, the whole point of this psalm is this is what God wants his thinking and, and the, the worldview singing as we live in this world. Yes, I'm burdened, God. I'm so burdened by the world. I'm burdened by my sin. And, and what do you, you cling to him. That's your recourse. But what's your conviction? What is it that governs what you're thinking as you go along in this world, far from Jerusalem? Our recourse, verse 3. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue, sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree? This verse does not talk about the psalmist. Years ago, even a couple years ago, reading this, I always interpreted this for many years that he's talking about his tongue, everyone's tongue, not also his. That's not true. <laughs> he's, he's, he's talking about judgment here. So the world is attacking him with their deceitful lies. They're attacking, they're attacking Christ. They're attacking God. And because we love him, we don't fit. Our heart, our souls are tormented. So what, what, with their verbal attacks, with their verbal lies, what's the recourse? God, not us. God is going to respond with sharp arrows of the warrior. And that speaks in a psalter of verbal rebuke. And the Psalter sharp arrows is a metaphor of the tongue, Psalm 57, 64. And so the judgment rendered to all who live and die in deceit is that of a strong rebuke, like Matthew 7. Many will say to me on the last day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? And your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles. And I will declare to them, I never knew me, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a verbal rebuke. Okay, so God, in their verbal attacks, God verbally gives a rebuke. Depart. Be gone. But then secondly, the burning coals of the broom tree. The broom tree in that uh, um, era, area is this very, 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 multiply that by a lot, slow-growing tree. And if you know anything about trees, the slower they grow, the harder they wood. So this is a very slow-growing tree. It only grows to the height of 12 feet. That's it. Um, and... But what it was noted for was its wood burnt incredibly hot and incredibly long. One log 
would burn hotter than five or six logs from a pine and last a whole lot longer than five or six logs of, of a pine. It burned long and hot. And it's a picture of judgment. Revelation 20. After we read of, of their fate, as we read of their fate on the last day, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire to be burnt forever. So this is judgment. Now, brothers and sisters, this isn't you and I judging. This is you and I recognizing. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, that the world in which we live, unless they repent, will be judged by God? So the the psalmist goes, I can't stand living in this world. It's so hard. And you go to the Lord. And the moment you go to the Lord, you have the realization that the world that sometimes you love is going to be, is, it merits the wrath of God. So that helps us say, man, I don't want to love it. Because th- those acts will be judged by God. But secondly, we live in a world where we are oppressed and we go to God and our eyes are open and we realize all the people around us, rather than making us angry at their lies and their deceits and all the things that they've done, this moves us to pity. Because these people someday are going to stand before God and be rendered guilty, judged guilty, and sent to burn in the fire of the broom tree. That's the whole point here. Now, with that, we get the burden, because it's a psalm, it's, it's poetic. He wants us to leave with that burden. Okay, And then we come to the very last, the consequent service. Five and six is the burden. Okay, He wants us, our feeling is, as you read this psalm, you walk away going, I am burdened by this world. I'm burdened because I'm far from God. I go to God, but I'm also burdened because non-believers are going to go to hell. I'm burdened by it. And then it ends with the consequent service. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Okay, It always amuses me, brothers and sisters, when the world responds to the fruit of deceit. And that fruit of deceit would be shootings, um, travesties, injustice, miscarriage of justice, I mean, name it. How does our world respond to it? One of two things. Social media, that's your 20-something female, white females, right? You know, this is horrible, this is bad. Instagram, TikTok, uh, name all the different social media platforms. How do we respond? We get on, on TikTok, on Instagram, and we rant. You know what, brothers and sisters, that is completely worthless. Or... If you're older than in your 20s and your 30s and 40s and 50s, you pick it and you, you attack and you burn buildings and you throw rocks and you, and you scream and you blo- cry bloody murder. Also, worthless. You realize how worthless? Think of it this way. I come home and I'm upset because my boss lied to me and I'm going to lose my job. So what do I do? I post on TikTok, my boss is bad. Is that going to save my job? No. Okay, I know. I'll do the opposite. I'll come home and I'll slug holes in the wall because I'm so mad. I'll throw rocks through the window. Does that save my job? It's amazing to me how I I was talking to one of you years ago and they said how they've got a non-Christian friend and when this shooting occurred at the homosexual nightclub in in, uh, Florida, that person was shocked following the Instagram of many people in this church, all about many, some people in this church, none of you posted anything of, I'm sick, this is horrible. 
So, and, but that was it. That's all that they did. All they did was post. And that made them feel good about themselves. Now, I will say this. Slugging in the hole wall feels good when you're angry. Ranting online feels good when you're angry. But it does absolutely nothing. That is not what is meaning here in verse 7 where it says, I'm for peace. That doesn't mean you go on your webpage and say, oh, this is bad and, and this is horrible. And that's not what that means. What does it mean? Well, look at the words, the word peace. In Hebrew, the word is shalom. It's the covenant word, which speaks of far more than a disposition or countenance of calmness. That's secondary. At its base, it speaks of peace with God on account of pardon sin. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's the peace spoken about here. And get this, there's no verb between I and peace. It says, I peace in the Hebrew. I peace. You know what that means? Same thing that Paul meant in Romans 1.1 when he says, I've been set apart unto the gospel. When we studied that years ago, we saw that meant that Paul viewed himself as a gospel man. I am a gospel man. My life is devoted to the gospel. That's what he's saying here. I peace. I am a gospel man. My life is dedicated to bringing real longing peace in this world. And what is that? It's only when people are reconciled to God. So far from from writing the Instagrams, if you want to be a man of peace, you go and you make peace between God and man. How is that? By sharing the gospel. Notice the next word. When I speak, debar, devar, actually, this refers to more than the opening of one's mouth and uttering a sound. It's not the, the word is not the word for sound. It refers to com, uh, conversing, dialoguing, and so interacting with someone. Randy Steele wrote. The verb to speak is appeal intensive. It's an intensive. In Hebrew, meaning that this is more than casual conversation. What causes men to speak with intensity? Politics will do that, sports too. But the context of this psalm would indicate conversation of a religious, spiritual nature. Few things elicit intensity of speech like religion. You do not have to say much about God of peace before the fallen culture is ready for war. Do you know his, he responded with? He didn't respond by posting Instagram. He didn't respond by throwing rocks. He responded to the world by speaking up and sharing the the glorious gospel of peace to the world. Now we're out of time. I'm going to skip the rest of my sermon, what I had planned. I'm just going to close with saying this. Brothers and sisters, do you understand the song God wants you to sing? He wants you to be fed up with this world. He wants you to go, I don't fit here, and feed it. He wants you to feed it. And, and you go, well, that'd be dangerous if that means that I'm going to leave the world, bury my head, and join a commune. Yeah, that'd be bad. But that's not what you do. He wants you to feed it because insofar as you feed it, you then go to the Lord. You don't go to one another and slander and attack and talk about stats and all the other garbage that's going on. No, you go to the Lord. You bow on your knees and you commune with God 10, 15, 20, 30. It doesn't matter time, but you commune with God. That's what God wants in Meshach and Kedar. And then when you're there, when you're there and you're seeing it and you're burdened by all that the world has and you're relying upon God, you wake up your eyes and you realize, my, the people I really am angry at, they're going to hell. And so you go, you know what? There's greater things in this world than being right. Let me come and bring them into a right relationship with God. Lord, would you use me that way? Would you use me? Give me grace. Give me grace to go speak. Now, you do that. What's going to happen? 
An entire culture built upon deceit is going to attack you. Okay, it's, it's going to get you and get you hard. Brothers and sisters, that's the song. God wants you to sing tomorrow in preparation for next week's worship. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. He wants you to memorize that song. So it's just, when God's people marched from Kadar and Meshach to Jerusalem to worship God and they sang the psalms, they knew them by heart. They didn't have a songbook. Let's say, guys, Psalm 120, yes! And they started in, memorize. I'm not saying memorize, let's say, the words of the psalm. Memorize the a flow of the psalm. Memorize the four parts of the psalm. The burden. Yes, I feel it, God. Secondly, the recourse. I'm going to you, God. Thirdly, the conviction. This world is, is damned. And lastly, the re, what we do in response. Serving the Lord as his vessels. May God give us the grace to sing this song. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this incredible psalm before us. Lord, I've, I've skipped parts of my notes, I regret. But what a wonderful passage as this is. God, I pray you'd give us the grace to sing this song. Individually and corporately as a congregation, give us the grace to sing this song to one another that it might enable us to commune with you, that we would, re, we would uh, encourage each other ourselves and our, our brothers and sisters to cling to you, to go to you, to take their burdens to you, to lay at your feet, and if it need be, all night as did Jesus, God, to commune with you, and then, O oh Lord, to see the world as you see it, and then, O oh Lord, to be a vessel of the Holy Spirit, his hands, his eyes, his ears, and his mouth. God, we pray, teach us to sing that song. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.